Well, we want to be uh, true to our, our middle name as a church. We love the Bible. We love the word of God. We want to make sure that our beliefs are anchored in God's word. And one of the best ways to study the Bible is systematically that we don't have to make things up as you go along. So we've been studying the book of Acts. So we have in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels. And the fifth book is the book of Acts, which is essentially a, a history of life in the early church. And some of it is describing events that are different than ours, but, but other parts of it are prescribing for us how we should act, how we should live, how we should process the things of this world. So we've been studying the church then, if you will, so that we can better function as a church now. And today we are finding ourselves in Acts chapter four. We've studied Acts one, two, and three. If you have a Bible, or a digital Bible, you can find your way to Acts chapter four. We're gonna look at the first 22 verses. Now, how many of you have enjoyed at some point in the present or past watching like a good spy movie or maybe war movie within which there's an interrogation scene? Do you like those scenes? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I asked my wife, my wife earlier, she's like, that doesn't interest me. But it interests me, I remember as a kid, we would watch uh, Chuck Norris. I mean, who doesn't love Chuck Norris, right? Chuck Norris. One of the best Chuck Norris quotes I ever heard was, I was once a man trapped in a woman's body, and then I was born. You gotta love, you gotta love Chuck Norris, right? So Chuck Norris had these movies in the early 80s, the missing in action movies, and he would undergo all sorts of trials, and somehow he would just survive and he would thrive. And I always thought to myself, I wonder if I could be like Chuck Norris. That's why I grew the beard actually. I wonder if I could be like Chuck Norris. Now I've never found myself in those kinds of circumstances, thank God. But how would you survive an interrogation? Have you ever wondered that? How would, how would you survive a brutal interrogation? Well, the bad news is this, but it's gonna be followed by good news, is that every Christian who's being faithful to God at some point will be interrogated by the world. You'll be questioned, you'll be challenged. You might be fined for your faith, depending on what country you're in and what circumstance you're in. There's always going to be times when we are confronted and interrogated and challenged and people will seek to manipulate us for our faith. Now. Here's the thing. If you talk to the average person in culture, they're completely fine and cool with a permissive Jesus, which is a fairy tale Jesus, by the way. The kind of Jesus that never ruffles feathers, the kind of Jesus that never questions authority, the kind of Jesus that doesn't take a stand for anything. They're fine with that Jesus, but they're not fine with the authoritative Jesus of scripture. The Jesus of scripture actually makes this claim that he is king, of kings and Lord of lords, that he has absolute supremacy over all of life. And you know what? People in positions of power are offended by that more often than not. And what, so when you go out into the world and you represent Jesus, and you're, you're forwarding his message, you're declaring to the state, to your family, to your friends, to maybe other people in church, hey, do you know that Jesus Christ is actually King of kings and Lord of lords? You might win some, but you're also gonna make some enemies. And this is what we see in Acts chapter four. 
In Acts chapter four, there are essentially two kinds of people. There are those that wish to usurp Christ's authority. And there are those that submit to Christ's authority. But in submitting to Christ's authority, they also refuse to submit to those who would usurp Christ's authority. The first group, which is largely composed, interestingly, of religious people. You think religious people would understand. But the first group, largely composed of religious people, are annoyed by Christ's claims as preached through the apostles. They're annoyed by Christ's authority over disease and over death. It bothers them. It bothers them. And what they attempt to do is to interrogate and to intimidate those that have been faithful to God. The second group, though, those that would submit to Christ, endure on Christ's behalf, because here's what we know, listen carefully, a true believer will never submit to anyone in a position of authority that fails to acknowledge Christ's authority. This won't happen. We, we honor authority. We submit to authority. But not when that authority usurps Christ's authority. That's when, sorry, we just drew a line there. We're not going to do that. So join me in in Acts chapter four. And as we go there, we, we need to make this question not just about others, but we need to ask a personal question. What has our response been to the claims of Christ over our lives? Do we like it when he claims authority or do we resist it? Are you annoyed by Christ or do you believe in Christ? Here's what the Bible says. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. That means the religious upper crust came not to them, upon them means they came to attack Christ's faithful disciples. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And by the way, the Sadducees, Sadducees in particular were a religious group within the Sanhedrin that despised the doctrine of a bodily resurrection. So this offended them as in terms of their authority, but it also offended their, their doctrine. So what do they do? What, it, what do people do who are power hungry? What do they do? Well, look what they do. Super relevant. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So if you remember in Acts chapter three, the apostles, not through their own power, but through the power of Christ, healed a man that couldn't walk for 40 years. He couldn't walk for 40 years. They healed him and he got up and he he not only started walking, he was running. He never, never learned to walk. They see this, that is the religious power hungry fiends and they take offense to it. And so they arrest Christ's servants. But what happens? It backfires and 5,000 people come to faith in Christ. We know this throughout history. The church always grows under persecution. It always does. And it always flounders when life's too easy. You notice that? Study history, it's true. So this, this incident, by the way, while it's unique to the first century in terms of all the details, what we see is that when we study 2000 years of church history, this pattern just repeats itself over and over and over again. Whenever the church says to authority, actually Christ is king 
they take offense to it and they react and they push back. See, the gospel offends the establishment. The gospel offends the elite. The gospel offends those in authority who fail to recognize Christ's authority because it challenges their authority. And in this case, it also challenges their righteousness. And it also challenges at times their doctrine. The Sadducees were challenged in their doctrine. But on the other hand, on the other hand, the message of a resurrected Christ, there is actually life beyond the grave that you know the trials and tribulations and sufferings we experience in the here and now? This is just temporary. This isn't, this isn't our permanent state. This is just temporary. And we know it's temporary because Christ has already 2,000 years back conquered our greatest enemy, which is death. So thousands come and believe and find new life in Christ. We will see, and we have seen, and until Jesus comes back, we will see this same scenario play out time and time and time again. Now, let me just give you a little personal advice. It's easy when someone attacks you because you're seeking to represent Christ, they attack you and they drag your name through the mud or they come after you. But here's what you need to know. It's actually not personal, it's spiritual. See, if you switched allegiances and joined their camp, they'd pat you on the back. So it's not personal, it's spiritual. We're in a spiritual battle. We have locked horns with the workers of darkness. And it might even be religious people that don't actually believe Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That when their authority is challenged, when it's resisted, when people do not comply, they lash out. This is why we need to remind ourselves, there is no neutrality with Jesus. You either are his follower or you are his enemy. There's no neutral ground. You can't get all Swiss with Jesus. You have to pick a side. You have to pick a side. And Jesus comes to us in all of his benevolence. He is benevolent. He is loving and he is merciful and he is kind and he is forgiving. But he also makes an authority claim over each person's life and over each nation and over each king and over each queen and over every prime minister. And he confronts false authority, including individual false authority. If I think, hey, you know what? I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the captain of my own soul. I will do what I want. I have radical autonomy. Christ will challenge that too. He'll challenge the king and he'll challenge the individual. Here's why, because in the gospel, fundamentally, here's what the gospel is. It's an authority issue. That's what the gospel is. It's an authority issue. It's always an authority issue. Notice that even religious people, religious people can, can be granted authority. I've been granted authority in this church. I could start to abuse it. I could start to misuse it for my own benefit. And it might not be immediately evident, but over time, you're like, what's this guy? Why is this guy a pastor? Is he looking for attention? Is he in it for his own benefit? Shame on me if I am. Shame on any of us if we're granted a position of authority and influence and we use it to fluff up our own feathers, to point people's attention to ourselves. Notice that the, the, the offended parties in this text are those that have pretty high authoritative offices. It says in verse five, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. It's like, let's call a meeting. 
Fortunately, we have the minutes from that meeting. We know what they talked about. We know who was there. With Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. Notice a little bit of nepotism going on there. They kind of kept it in house. And when they had set them in the midst, that is, they call in the faithful apostles of Christ, here's what they ask them. They, they inquire of them. By what power or by what name did you do this? This isn't an honest question. It's not, hey, uh, we noticed you healed this guy. How did it happen? This was a, who do you think you are? Did you ask our permission to heal this man? Notice how heartless they are too. This guy was lame for 40 years. There was no celebration from them. There was no party balloons. There was no high fives. They were offended because it revealed their weakness. It revealed their impotence. It revealed their powerlessness. So they're offended by this. By what power did you do this? Why did they ask this? Because this is, this is where power becomes tyrannical. Power is tyrannical, not when you have power, but when you use it for your own benefit. That's when power becomes tyrannical. We are not anti-establishment as Christians. We're not anti-authority. We believe in authority in the home, parental authority. We believe in the spiritual headship of the husband over his wife. We believe in eldership in the local church, and we believe God puts civil authorities in place. We are in favor of authority. But each of those spheres of authority has limited powers designated to them by God. And they exist for the benefit of the, the, the marriage, the family, the church, the establishment academy, the state. Unfortunately, human beings that have refused to put themselves under Christ's authority, but have positions of authority, always inevitably abuse it. They always do. Because they, they're doing it fundamentally for themselves. There is no such thing as a benevolent ruler that does not love the Lord Jesus Christ. They can fake it till they make it. They can pretend, but at the end of the day, they're in it for themselves. They're in it for themselves. And we see that in our own country and in our own culture where they're in it for themselves. Well, the gospel challenges that. The gospel challenges that. And by the way, if we are granted positions of authority in our lives, let us make sure that we are wielding them for the benefit of others. That we can say, hey, maybe the Lord didn't use me to heal someone who couldn't walk, but he's used me to bless people and build people up. So we pour out as office bearers for the sake of others. Well, they, they, they asked this question, so how are these guys gonna respond? Are they gonna cut and run? No, they don't cut and run. Here's what Peter says. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, why do we need to know if he's filled with the Holy Spirit? Because it reminds us that it's not his power to preach the sermon. It's not his power to take a stand. By the way, there's a difference between the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which happens at conversion, and the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is a daily thing corresponding to your obedience. If you're not obedient, you're not filled. If you are obedient, you are filled. So he's filled with the Holy Spirit because brothers and sisters, I don't care how tough you are or how extroverted you are, we all have a breaking point. We all have a breaking point. But when we have the power of the Holy Spirit fueling us, convicting us, to take a principled stand, to preach the full gospel regardless of the outcomes. God gets the glory, not us, because it's not from me, it's from God. 
So he says to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, in other words, we're not taking the credit for it. We just want to let you know who actually did it. It's Jesus. Whom you crucified, backhander. A little reminder, you were the ones that put him on the cross. Whom God raised from the dead. You tried, but you failed because God was victorious. By him, this man is standing before you well. That's what we call a run-on sentence. But in the Bible, it's perfectly acceptable. Okay. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. So when you build a building in ancient times, the first thing you do is you'd locate the cornerstone. And then every measurement is taken off that cornerstone. So he uses this analogy to speak of Christ. Christ is the cornerstone. Culture, life, marriage, church, civilizations must all be built off of Christ. He's the cornerstone. The buck stops with Jesus. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then this incredibly offensive statement. It continues to offend people today that refuse to acknowledge Christ. But for those that do acknowledge Christ, this is a huge blessing. Here's what it, here's what it is. I read this to you last week. And there is salvation in no one else. It doesn't sound very Canadian, but it's in the Bible. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, period. There it is. The exclusive message of the gospel. That's the offense of the gospel. That's what ruffled the religious elite's feathers that thought they had some righteousness in and of themselves. That is what each of us are confronted with. Will you surrender to Christ? and ask forgiveness of your sins, or do you actually think you can earn your way into heaven through your own righteousness? If you do, you're walking a dead end street. So this is the exclusivity of the message. Notice when they preach this, they point to the healing powers of Christ, that Christ is the one that healed, so they don't want to take any credit for it. They reference his resurrection, because through his resurrection, he conquered death, and he also corrected the Sadducean theology. And reminded them that their crucifixion of Christ backfired and his conquering of death actually proved that he alone has power over death. Now, if we weren't bent towards sin, how could this not be received as good news? Are you, what? Are you telling me that Jesus conquered death, did it for us, rose from the grave? This is great news, but it's not great news to someone that thinks of themselves as righteous. It's not great news to the hyper-religious that want to take credit for their own righteousness because they have a seminary degree or they go to church every week. It's offensive to them. People continue to be offended by that today. You know why? Because when it comes to righteousness, we always play the comparison game. Well, at least I'm better than that guy. But that's not the standard. The standard is Christ. And all people fall short. So all of us need grace. This is the great news. And there are few things that are more offensive. In fact, there's nothing that's more offensive to man-centered, 
self-pleasing, selfish. It's all about me. The universe revolves around me. I'm the smartest guy in the room. Holders of authority. There's nothing more offensive than when Jesus is actually, you have a problem. You can't save yourself. You must surrender yourself to Jesus Christ. No effort, no office. Your favorite Messiah cannot save you. Only Christ can save you. This is super offensive. Do you see, you see the tie-in? I hope you're making the tie-in. Back then, now, back then, now. You see the tie-in to the moment. This is why our culture hates Jesus. Not the permissive Jesus of the fairy tale world, but the biblical Jesus. Leaders of the state, leaders of households, leaders of the academy, they are offended at Christ's claim to have absolute authority over all of life. And they're super offended when the church asserts Christ's exclusive authority over the ministry and worship of the Christian church. They're super offended by that. They're offended when you say, actually, no, you don't have authority over my capacity to work. I have a a sixth day I should work, seventh I should rest commandment at my disposal. They're offended by that. They're offended when you say, actually, I'm responsible to educate my own children, not the state. They're offended by that. They're offended by that. And it continues to offend the world order. So this is, this is the, the circumstances that these early believers found themselves in. Now, what I want to do at this point is I want to help you to see the tactics that the godless will employ. And what you need to do is, as I'm describing the text, make the connection to what's going on in our world today, because you're going to be amazed to find out there's a direct connection. By the way, when I stenciled out my sermon schedule, and I put Acts 4 in for this week. At the time, I didn't know we were going to do baptisms. And I didn't know my tickets were going to be dismissed this week. I had no idea. But it all weaves together. Check it out. Check, see how relevant this is to what's going on in the world today. So what I want you to see, I want you to understand their tactics. And so I put this heading on it. Politics, public perception, and the power of God. Look at the political maneuvering they resort to, to try to get their way. Look at the public perception that they deal with. And then we're going to see at the end, the power of God at work. The first thing we're going to see in the text is the arrogant, the arrogance of the elite toward the people of God. The arrogance of those in positions of public office toward the people of God, the disdain they have for the people of God. Verse 13 Listen to what it says. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, in other words, they weren't part of the elite. They weren't part of the inner circle. They weren't part of the legislative assembly. They weren't tenured university professors. They weren't medical experts. These were just average dudes. When they saw the uneducated common men, they were astonished and rightly so. They should have been astonished because they were representing God well. And they recognize that they had been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Well, imagine that. They're opposed to the disciples who have healed this man. They have the evidence put right before them, but they push it aside. I don't really care. I don't care if by the power of Jesus you healed a man because we have an agenda, we have a narrative, and we're gonna stick with it. And it's about us. So, This is what they do next. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, 
they conferred with one another. So they shoo Christ's disciples out of the room and they have a little meeting behind closed doors. But we have the record of that meeting. Before we read it though, let me just say this. It's a classic mark of power hungry people who reject Christ to refuse to even examine the evidence in favor of Christ. This is the problem with rational evidential apologetics. There's nothing wrong with being rational about your faith, presenting people the evidence, but folks, we have evidence galore at our disposal for the veracity of the Christian faith. There's volumes and volumes written on the truthfulness of the resurrection, the words of Christ, healing episodes, on the, how God created the world. There's all, the science is on our side. History is on our side. Public testimony is on our side. It doesn't matter how much evidence you dump on people's laps. They do not want to submit to Christ. They want to self-govern. They want to self-govern. Now, they look down, obviously, on the regular people, perceiving them as being uneducated. Do you see the tie-in? Now, we, we are not opposed to good education. Collectively, we have more degrees here in this room than a thermometer has. We're not opposed to education. We have a school. We teach math, science, literature. I just finished teaching a Greek course to some of our young people. We're not opposed to education. But when you educate people apart from God, what you're doing is you're just taking them for a cruise through a sewer. Because without God in education, you just end up with nonsense. The Bible says in Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You'll never be wise if you don't love Christ. You may have a high IQ, pass a few tests, earn a few degrees, write a few books, but the fear of the Lord, Christ is the presupposition for all wisdom and knowledge. You throw him out, you have nonsense. This is why, think about our culture. We live in a culture that's more educated than any other culture in human history. Human history. And we have all these people in high offices, in politics, in the academy, the educated elite, not the common man, but the educated elite. And they will look you straight in the eye and deny the factual reality of maleness and femaleness in human biology. It's like, how, how is that possible? Like, you don't have to be a Christian to say, that's a boy, that's a girl. How is it possible that we have got to a point in society where you can have the evidence right in front of your nose? Here it was the healed man. There's the evidence right in front of our nose. This is a man, this is a woman. Who cares? We have an agenda. We're offended at Christ's authority and we're gonna connive and manipulate and do whatever you want. This is why when you go to a lot of the public educational establishments today, you come out with a diploma, but really it's just a public indoctrination certificate. But they think they're so smart. They're the experts. And they love to look down on Christians, you know, these, these uneducated you know, these faith people, as if there's some sort of a distinction between true faith and true science. We're the science people. We're the educated elite. You're the, you're the faith people. You know, you're the sentimentalists. You're the people that hang your intellect at the door when you walk into a Christian church. That's what they think of us. 
And it's not personal, it's a spiritual battle. So then we have the meeting here and it's not a principled meeting. It's not like, hey, well, let's, let's think about this logically. Let's actually examine the evidence. Let's, let's consider if we're right or wrong. It's dirty politics, it's dirty pool. They come together as the elite And here's what it says in verse 16 and 17, saying, what shall we do with these men? Well, how about exonerate them? How about give them a medal? But they don't do that. For that a notable sign, listen to this, listen to their admission of guilt. For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter to them. But in order that it may not, may spread no further among the people. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. You see that? Now, throughout history, you have some governments that have literally banned Christianity. I was speaking to a Christian brother in our church this week that grew up in communist Czechoslovakia. And he said he was in a college class. Professor's like, does anybody here believe in God? Going once, going twice, going three times. He put up his hand at the risk of expulsion from school. It was illegal. You had to be an atheist to be in the academy. Well, you think we're immune from that in Canada, folks? We're heading straight over the cliff. We have bills that have been passed by our government declaring a biblical view of human sexuality. The exact word is as a myth. It's not in its third reading, it's past. Well, they may pull this power play. They may seek to ignore Christ's power over death. But the, the early faithful leaders of the church see right through it. They don't say, oh, well, Romans 13. Better not question authority. We're just going to go hide in our churches and preach. No, no, here's what they say. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's their solution. We we came up with a law. You're not allowed to do ABC. You're not allowed to do it. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We're witnesses of Christ. Doesn't matter what you say. Doesn't matter what law you pass doesn't matter what threats you levy, we're doing it anyway. We're not trying to be jerks. We're just doing it anyway. This is the mark of a faithful Christian. They wanted to charge these men for declaring liberty to the captives. They wanted to charge them for being faithful witnesses of Christ. And the correct response that they gave and the correct response of every faithful Christian since should be, we are doing it anyway. And it's not so we can be in the Windsor Star. And it's not so we can get book deals. And it's not so we can look like heroes. We're just doing it for Jesus. We're doing it anyway. We're doing it anyway. We may have come through a bit of a crisis over the past couple of years. There'll be more. There'll be more. There might even be some within your own family We must submit to proper authority, but never when it usurps God and his rightful authority. So that's a little bit of an an insight into the tactics, the politicking, the, the inability to see the obvious. 
But now we end here with a beautiful reminder of the power of Christ. Check this out. This is, here's where we see the failure of the elite to thwart the things of God. They fail, they lose, they always do. And in the great eschaton, they will once and for all lose. Verse 21 and 22, and when they had further threatened them, that's a tactic of a tyrant, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, which basically means because they were concerned about public opinion. The chips weren't on their side of the table anymore. This is how unprincipled tyrants function. They wet their finger, they stick it in the air. If public opinion's on their favor, they'll go for it. But as soon as there's pushback, we're not complying. They back off because they're not principled. There's no foundation to their decisions. It's about self-preservation. You see that? So what happens next? They let him go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. And then we're, we go back to the, the man that was healed. This is how it ends. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old, which just kind of reminds us this was actually a supernatural miracle from God. He's 40 years old. 40-year-old people that have never walked don't just get up and start running laps. This was a miracle. So the worst thing anyone can do when God's authority is rejected and when a human oversteps their authority is to comply. That's the worst thing you can do. That fuels the tyranny. That fuels the godlessness. Instead, when you take a bold stand, again, not to seek attention, but point people to God, what happens? Christ will have his reward. Christ will have his reward. People will get saved. Lives will be transformed. Marriages will be healed. People find themselves economically stabilized when they follow God's laws. The world will be blessed when God is acknowledged because he's not a tyrant God. He's a benevolent God. He's a benevolent God. So this is gonna be an ongoing test for the people of God. It'll be an ongoing test for you. There will be things that you may encounter this coming week or this summer or this fall or next year or 10 years from now that will test you, that will test you. Who's your true king? Who's your daddy? Who are you actually going to submit to? You'll be tested. And unprincipled people will resort to every trick in the book to try to get you to say uncle. Where you're called to submit, submit to them. Where you're not called to submit, don't submit to them. And God will bless you and God will bring you through. They will ultimately lose the spiritual battle. History is strewn with examples of that right back to the time of the first century church. Power hungry people ultimately will not win. So how do you survive a spiritual interrogation? Well, you stand firm, you trust him, the Lord, you represent him well, you declare the Lordship of Christ and you let God do whatever he wants to do with your life and you'll be blessed.